Well, if you are new to us, I want to welcome you. Thank you for joining us this morning. Um, and if you're not new, I'm glad you're here too. This is a, a joy to, week after week, stand up here and teach the Word of God. And that's what a church should do. should stand up week by week, listen to the Scriptures. We, we, are, we are a people of the Bible. We love the Bible. We believe that it's true from the first word to the last word. We believe that it is the Word of God, written through the hands of men, written with the minds of men, written according to their personalities. We believe in something called inspiration. The Scriptures are inspired. God takes a, a normal guy, gets a hold of his heart, does amazing things, and in his sovereignty orchestrates all the situations, all the things, his personality, the way that he processes things, the way he looks at the world. And God uses that man in uniquely in a few men in history. God has spoken in such a way that we take those words that these men have said, these men have written, and uh, we look to them as the word of God. And so what we have in our Bibles is the faithful message of God for us. And this summer, we spent uh, time looking at the Word of God in different places as we considered the topic of the Gospel. The Gospel, the central message of our faith, the message of Christ crucified, risen, alive, reigning, the sending of His Spirit. All things are going to culminate when He returns and everything is about Jesus and what He's done and who He is. And all summer long we looked at just the practical implications of that and now we're switching gears. We're going to go to a book. We're just going to study straight through a book and actually it's a, it's a letter that we have preserved for us. And it's the letter of a man named Paul to a church in a place called Corinth. Um, Paul was uh, kind of came late in the game, so to speak, in terms of the, uh, well, life of Jesus, I guess. He didn't come on the scene until after Jesus had died and resurrected. And God had a very special plan for this man. He was a persecutor of the church. He was, he was a highly educated, a very zealous Jew. And when he saw these new teachings about Jesus being the Messiah coming about, he decided he was going to put it out. And so he started persecuting the church. Well, then God changed him. And he became the author then of 13 of the letters of the New Testament. He wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. And so this, this rebel and persecutor turned into devout follower, worshiper of Jesus and teacher of the church. And so let's talk a little bit about Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Um, what we have here, uh, let me just give you a little bit of geography. We're going to start real big and then we'll zoom in close and we'll try to understand what's going on in this letter. 
Um, just to give you kind of a, a, your, your bearings here, over here on the east, we've got, this is the Mediterranean Sea. Over on the east side, this is where Israel's located. Uh, it, it's at, at the time of Christ, the Roman province of Judea. So that's what you'll read in um, your New Testament. Up on the northwest corner of the map, you see the Italian peninsula there and uh, the boot, right? And this is most significant in the first century because this is where Rome is located, which is the epicenter of the Roman uh, Empire. Um, Let's see, in the northeast here, we've got what would be modern-day Turkey. This is Asia Minor. This is where the church is in Ephesus and the church in Colossae were located. Um, Right about here, let's see. Here we go. This is Achaia, modern-day Greece. Achaia was a Roman province. It included this little, almost an island-looking thing and and a little bit of the land up north. And right in here is Corinth. So we'll just take a little closer look here. You can see that there's a little isthmus there. You've got a harbor on the east, a harbor on the west, a little plot of land. It's about four and a half miles wide. And uh, there was a road that went straight across that, that they had made. And Corinth is located right there. This is significant because of travel north and south. You have people come in right, right through there. But it was even more significant because you had a lot of traffic going east and west connecting Italy to Asia, Asia Minor. It was a major point of traffic. Now, you could have sailed south, um, gone around the, around the tip, but at, this southern, at the southeastern tip of Achaia, there was a place called Malaya. The Cape of Malaya is what they called it. And here's, we, we, here's what they used to say. Here's what the sailors used to say about Malaya. We have this recorded for us by a guy named Strabo, who uh, was living, uh, he died in 24 AD. The sailors used to say, when you double Malaya, forget your home. Because the weather's bad. So you're probably going to die. Or at least there's a, good, there's, there's a good chance that you're not going home. So... People didn't like to go that way. They went right through these harbors, and it meant that Corinth was, uh, there was a lot going on in Corinth. And it actually had some significant impact on the culture of the city, as you can probably imagine. Four things that we can, that we can see uh, that are related to this high traffic zone, four elements uh, of the culture that I want to point out. One there was a lot of trade and a lot of business in Corinth. Um, you had all kinds of craftsmen, shops, lawyers, laborers, uh, taverns. Uh, there's just all kinds of stuff going on. Leather workers, metal workers, uh, just very, very bustling environment. And because of that, because you had a lot of trade, you had a lot of business in Corinth, you also had a lot of money. It's very... Uh, uh, successful in that sense uh, as far as as an ancient city goes um, you could you could actually make some good money in Corinth if you played your cards right Um, there was also quite a disparity between the social elite and the poor perhaps because of that Um, there was also a high level of self-sufficiency 
and a lot of self-promotion in Corinth. Um, Because of the business culture and the wealth, there's lots of opportunity to climb the social ladder in Corinth, and that's that's what they did. They used their money to gain social status, um, which, of course, you know, only fed this problem of the, of the distance between the rich and the poor. Um, scholars note that the people of Corinth had a zeal, a zeal for social status. So you could like uh, put your name on a statue. Or, you know, they've, they, they have, we've got artifacts of things like, uh, you know, Alexander built this road out of his own, from his own money. Public statue, you know. I, I've gone to, uh, I've gone to, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? I've gone to stores that that will say we give X amount, X percentage of our of our proceeds back to the community. You know, it's just kind of like it's a it's a statement of like here's what we're here's what we do, here's what we did. Well, there was a zeal for social status, a zeal for honor, a zeal for power in Corinth. And that's what money could buy you. They domi- these kinds of things dominated the social dynamics of the Corinthian culture. Um, it was into this culture of power and honor and elitism that Paul brought his gospel of the humiliating cross of Christ. Not only did you have a very self-sufficient and a self-promoting culture, but you also had a a cosmopolitan pluralism. There's a lot of ethnic diversity in Corinth. You had Roman freedmen. These are people who had become, who had been slaves, who had been legally freed. You also had indigenous Greeks, and you had all kinds of immigrants because you got people coming from all over the east and the west through through the a city. Uh, stopping perhaps even to try to make a living, try to try to make something happen in Corinth. You also had a, a religious melting plot, melting plot pot in Corinth. Some of the gods that have been noted, noted um, in our you know archaeological or um, evidence that we have from literature, the, the Corinthians worshipped Apollo, Aphrodite, Athena, Dionysus, Hermes. Jupiter Capitolinus, Poseidon, Zeus. There was a lot of Egyptian mystery cults that were uh, taking place in Corinth. They also had a a high interest in magic. Um, Because of all of these things, there was also rampant immorality in Corinth. A lot of sexual immorality in Corinth. And and, uh, in fact, it was maybe even kind of known for that. So uh, Gordon Fee... Uh, commentator says that Corinth, the Corinth of Paul, Paul's day was all at once the New York, Los Angeles, and the Las Vegas of the ancient world. So this was, a, this was quite an active little place. And um, this is what another commentator says. This, is, this guy's name is Anthony Thistleton. He says, with today's postmodern mood, we may compare the self-sufficient, self-congratulatory culture, culture of Corinth coupled with an obsession about peer group prestige, success in competition, uh, their, dev- their devaluing of traditional and universals, and near contempt for those without standing in some chosen value system. All this provides an embarrassingly close model of a postmodern context for the gospel in our own times. 
even given the huge historical differences and distances in so many other respects. So um, we may actually see some stuff here that's pretty familiar to us. I think we will. I mean, this, this little list here, what did we have? Um, that rings a bell to me of a, of a culture that we live in. So um, this, is, this is relevant to us. And Paul thinks that this is the perfect place to plant a church. So let's, uh, let's take a look at this. Paul leaves on his second missionary journey from Jerusalem over here on the east. He heads north, and he crosses Asia Minor, and then he crosses the Aegean Sea into a land called Macedonia, a Roman province called Macedonia. This is where the church in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, they're right up in there. Paul heads down the eastern side of Macedonia into Achaia, crosses around that bottom part there, goes to Athens, and lands in Corinth at about 50 AD and stays there for a year and a half, which is actually quite a long time for Paul to stay anywhere. And um, then he heads back to Jerusalem. And we don't know exactly when, sometime between 53 and 57, Paul is in Ephesus, which is over in Asia Minor, and he is having some sort of correspondence with, Cor- with the church in Corinth, uh, writing letters back and forth. And that's, uh, that's, where we, that's where this comes from. That's, where, that's the context of this letter. That's the city of Corinth. That's the rough time frame, somewhere between 53 and 57. There's something going on in Corinth that Paul is in dialogue with them about. There's some letters going back and forth. This isn't actually the first letter. 1 Corinthians is not the first letter that Paul had written to Corinth. He makes mention in 1 Corinthians 5.9 of a previous letter that he had sent to them. So it's not the first letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians, but it is the first letter that we have, and so we call it 1 Corinthians. So this is the letter of, of Paul to the Corinthians, this church that he planted and stayed with for a year and a half. What's going on at the church in Corinth? Why did he write this? Well, big picture reason, first of all, is that uh, he's heard some reports. He's, been, he's, got, he's, he's catching wind of something. First uh, Corinthians 1.11, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. Chloe is just somebody that Paul knows and knows something that's going on at Corinth. We don't, don't know a ton more than that. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So he, these oral reports have stirred Paul. Something that needs to be dealt with here, talked about. Second reason, second occasion, is that he has received a letter from them prior to this. 1 Corinthians 7.1 Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So there's stuff going on in Corinth. These two sources have motivated him to address some very practical issues. And um, that's what we're going to look at in this book. Some very practical issues that are taking place in Corinth. And um, we'll see that there's actually something happening below all. There's a reason that all these issues are coming up. 
So we'll, we'll, we'll focus on that, and we'll look at what some of these issues are here in a minute. So let's dive into the letter. Um, and the first thing I want to do is just point out Paul's calling. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. The first thing Paul does is he identifies himself as an apostle. In nine of Paul's 13 letters, within the first verse, he identifies himself as an apostle. This is a man whose identity is wrapped up in who God has called him to be, and uh, it's important for him, perhaps for various reasons, it's important for him to understand for himself, it's important for him to communicate to the church in Corinth that he's an apostle. What does that mean? What, what, what has God assigned him to do as, as an apostle? What, is, what does it mean? What an apostle means, Paul's apostleship means that he is an authoritative messenger of God regarding the interpretation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the implications. So Paul looks at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus He interprets it and the implications he draws out and he is an authoritative, he's an authority on the subject because Christ has sent him. An apostle is someone who Christ has made as his envoy, as his messenger. So if you want to know what God thinks about Jesus, if you want to know what Jesus thinks about Jesus, listen to the apostles. These are the ones who are given authority by God, authority by Jesus, to communicate what God thinks about Jesus, what God thinks about the church. And sometimes you'll hear people talk about how they like Jesus, but they don't really like Paul. Or they like what Jesus says, but they don't really like what Paul says. I had a conversation recently with a a gentleman who... uh, he, 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 just, he was so angry about what Paul says about homosexuality because Jesus never talks about homosexuality. Well, you could answer that a couple different ways. You could say, well, yes, he does. Jesus talks about homosexuality when Paul talks about it because Paul was sent by Jesus to be an authority on the life, death, resurrection of Jesus the interpretation of that and the implications of that in the church. So Paul is an authority. Paul talks about it in ways that Jesus doesn't talk about it. But I know what Jesus thinks about it. For one reason, I know what Jesus thinks about it. Uh, Not only because Paul talked about it, I also know what Jesus thinks about it because Jesus was a Jew. And the Jews in their scriptures are very plain about this issue. But Paul talks about it very explicitly and some people don't like the way that Paul talks about things and they pit Jesus against Paul because Paul talks about some hard issues and we're actually going to come up against some of these very difficult teachings in Paul's letter. Um, Not that one in particular so much. It comes up just, he just briefly mentions it. Um, But... Perhaps in your life, he will say some things that are harder for you to hear than that. I wouldn't be surprised. So, um, when you think that way, and you pit Jesus against Paul, it reveals 
unbelief in the apostleship of Paul. It reveals that you don't believe that Jesus really sent him, that, that he really speaks on behalf of Christ and on behalf of God the Father. And this is precisely what's taking place in Corinth. There is questions about Paul's apostleship. So you can see here in, uh, let's see, 1 Corinthians 4. There it is. Here's what Paul says. This is how we should reg- how one should regard us, apostles. He's talking about himself. He's talking about Cephas or Peter. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. The church, the church is not so sure whether or not they should validate Paul's apostleship. It becomes very apparent in 2 Corinthians. The situation escalates. Paul's apostleship is big time in question in this church, but it's already stirring here. They're already passing some kind of judgment against Paul regarding his apostleship. This comes up again, especially uh, throughout the rest of chapter 4. comes up again in chapter 9. Um, and this is part of the reason why I think Paul is, from the beginning, asserting that, yes, indeed, Christ and God the Father have made me an apostle. So we'll see how he does this throughout the letter. Um, when Paul talks about his calling, when, when Paul is identifying himself as an apostle and he's trying to express to the church, it's important that you realize I'm an apostle. It's not so that he can build up some sort of self-exalting status before them. He's not trying to promote his, uh, some place of prominence in the church so that people will give him the kind of attention that he needs because he's got some sort of uh, you know, self-exalting egotism. In fact, you get the feeling as you read through the book of 1 Corinthians that if Paul had been that way, they may have accepted him a little bit better. Because the culture in Corinth developed in them a mentality which made them look for in men of authority, men of honor, a kind of self-exalting, self-promoting prestige. That's what they valued. That's what a lot of people in our culture value as well. And Paul's apostleship doesn't manifest itself in flair. And if it had, they may have accepted him more easily. No, he doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't manifest itself in flair. And neither did Jesus' messianic mission, did it? Which is the point. He's not here to bring flair. He's not here to make money. He's not here to gain prestige or power or social honor. That's not the purpose of Paul's authority. Paul's authority is given to him so that he can testify to the truth about Jesus, who he is, and the unprecedented power that is on display in what appears to be a very foolish incident when the Messiah is crucified, executed, on a Roman cross in order to bring salvation. That's quite a foolish and lowly and humble and self, uh, it's certainly not self-exalting. This is the message that Paul is proclaiming. A crucified Messiah brings salvation and he's not bringing it in his own lifestyle in a way that contradicts the message that he's preaching. The message is one of 
great power in weakness. That's what Jesus did, was bring about great power in something that appeared to be very weak. And Paul's own life, in his proclamation of that message, is a life that manifests great authority, profound teaching, in quite a weak and humble and self-sacrificing, simple man. A lifestyle that was full of pain and trial, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 4, 9, and 10, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. That is how Paul's authoritative apostleship is manifesting itself. It's counter-Corinthian culture. Okay. Paul's called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And our brother Sosthenes. So first thing in, 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 a Greco- in the Greco-Roman world, in a personal letter like this, you basically have three elements. You'll see them in verses 1, 2, and 3. You've got the author identifying himself. You've got the author identifying who he's addressing, and then you've got some sort of greeting. So the author identifying himself, Paul, he says that he's with his brother Sosthenes. Who's Sosthenes? We don't really know. There was in Corinth a synagogue leader named Sosthenes who was beaten at one point. Perhaps this man became uh, a Christian. We don't really know. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18. But at the, at the very least, we can say that Paul's not a lone ranger. The guy's never alone. We have this idea that Paul, sometimes we have this idea that Paul is just kind of out there. He's, he's doing whatever he wants to do. He's not accountable to anybody. He's just the, to- he's the ultimate like lone ranger Christian. And um, Paul was not that way. And Paul was very intentional about building up a team of co-workers around him, discipling other men, other women in his life. So he's got these co-workers. This guy uh, is Sosthenes. Paul was following the model of Jesus. He's, he's a disciple maker. Okay, the second thing that he does here, he addresses the, uh, he addresses the Corinthian church. This is, this is to whom the letter is written. To the church of God that is in Corinth. Now I'm just going to pause right there. We've talked about the city of Corinth. We've talked a little bit about the church, but I, I, wanna, I want you to get uh, the flavor of what this church is like. I read one commentator who said uh, maybe about 100 people. Is that crazy? It's a mega church. Okay. Um, let me introduce you to the church of God in Corinth. They are quarreling, they are jealous. There is jealousy and strife among them. They're questioning Paul's apostleship. There's incredible sexual immorality. Some dude is sleeping with his stepmom. We'll talk about it. Lawsuits among believers. Uh, Questions about marriage, divorce, singleness. Questions about personal convictions and the abuse of Christian freedom. Uh, Misunderstandings about men's and women's responsibilities. Misunderstandings about the Lord's Supper. Misunderstandings and uh, abuses of spiritual gifts. Um, The church is disorderly. The church misunderstands the end times. Uh, This church is a total wreck. It's a total mess. The church in Corinth, 
is a disaster. I don't know, I just said the same thing three times. It was, it was really bad. And what we're going to find in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth is that rather than rethinking the values of their culture through the lens of the gospel, what the Corinthians have done, what these believers has, have done, is they've allowed themselves to be so influenced and they have embraced the values of their culture that the church is a mess because of it, because they're letting it, they're, they're, just, they're just taking everything they hear out there, they're buying it, they're bringing it in here, and they're trying to do church, and it's just a, to- it's a total disaster. They've let the culture determine how they live out their Christian faith, rather than allowing the cross to confront the values of the culture, and then inspire them to live differently, where they need to live differently, in the church and in the culture. As Gordon Fee says, he's a commentator on 1 Corinthians, the problem was not that there was a church in Corinth. The problem is that there was too much Corinth in the church. And this is so easy to do, isn't it? I mean, can you relate to this? New Hope Fellowship, where are we going to take our cues on how we should do church? Where are we going to take our cues on what to believe about sexuality what informs your opinions about divorce or a woman's rights over her own body or a man's rights over his own body paul talks about both of those things in first corinthians 7 where are we going to get our ideas about these kinds of things are we going to the bible are we going to the scriptures is that where we're going to go is that the path we're going to take over the next 5 10 15 years are we going to embrace what the culture says and say yeah because uh, this seems to work out there we're going to do it in here or are we going to read the scriptures let that determine how we do church and how we live our lives in the world we have to ask that question and as americans especially i think in this part of the country it's so easy to identify with the cultural pressure that the corinthians were under can you, can you identify with this? I, I, I hope you can. I, I, I think the temptation is strong. And 1 Corinthians is a reminder to us that we have to resist that pressure to allow contemporary American values to determine what it means to be a Christian, to determine how the church should function, to determine how to structure our marriages, how to raise our children, how to date, how to spend our money, how to lead our churches, how to resolve conflict. This is what tears a church apart. It will tear the church apart if we don't go to the scriptures, if we don't commit together to say we're a Bible people. That's how we do things. Okay, so Paul's about to dive into this very messy situation. And um, as he does, look at how he addresses the Corinthians. Right, because that's where that's where it's all going. It's going. It's he's going to go mess. He's going to go talk to them about this mess of a church. So look what he does to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctified and called to be saints. Sanctified, set apart, consecrated, set apart for a specific uh, purpose, uh, chosen, selected, set apart, sanctified. 
It has ethical implications. You should live differently because you are a sanctified people, a chosen people, a people who are set apart. You belong to God and that should reflect in your life. You're called to be saints. Called to be saints or you're called to be God's holy people. Holy people. You could translate, translate the word holy people. It's, it's exactly what it means. The problem with the church in Corinth, Corinth is that they're acting like full, full-blown Corinthians without many or any of the important distinctions that these holy people should have from their culture. It's nothing about their lifestyle that's demonstrating that they're set apart from God. And that's why Paul, from the outset of the letter, is not only telling them what he is called to do, but he's reminding them who they're called to be. I'm called to be an apostle. You're called to be saints. Holy people. Consecrated, set apart, sanctified. And it's not just you, Corinthians, but you're part of a larger group of people. You're called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and your, and your cultural savviness in this cool place that you live, this really cool, trendy, uh, hopping marketplace that you live in doesn't give you the right to act differently than God's people do anywhere else. We're all called to be God's people, the church of Christ. You don't have special rights to live really differently than everybody else is called to live. You are the church of God in Corinth and you need to act like God's people. Okay. So that's who we're talking about. That's the church of Corinth. That's who the church of Corinth was acting like and that's who the church of Corinth is called to be. Paul is coming with apostolic authority to talk to these people. And he's going he's gonna to address some things. But this is, this is so cool. The third element of the opening to the letter is the greeting. And in, in the normal letter, letter of the day, uh, the, the author would say, um, you know, Alexander to Sosthenes, um, greetings. Chirene, greetings. And Paul does something different. He changes the he changes the, uh, the the convention. He says, "Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." Paul's extending as an apostle grace and peace. Grace, God's unmerited favor to you, Corinthians, and peace, God's settled. Um, gentle, reconciliatory demeanor toward you. Grace to you, Corinthians, and peace to you. Now, what's so sweet about this? Especially knowing what a total mess the church in Corinth was, is that the grace and the peace that Paul is extending to the Corinthians is God's grace and peace to them. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This church is a wreck. And God says through the apostle, I come to you bringing from the Father grace and peace. So it's a, it's a wish prayer <laughs> that he's praying over the Corinthians. And that's good news, isn't it? That's really good news. Look at how God, through Paul, approaches his people 
when they desperately need confrontation. This church needs help. This church needs a lot of help. Paul is going to definitely bring it. Um, But he starts off by reminding them that God's demeanor towards them is gracious and peaceful. When God confronts his children, this is the mentality that we need to remember, we need to remind ourselves of this. He, he is for you. He is for, he's on your side. If you're a Christian, he is for you. He comes with grace. He comes having made peace, reconciling your relationship to him on the cross. When God confronts his children who are in sin, he doesn't come in fury. He already poured out his fury, remember? On the cross. That's what the cross is all about. He has poured out his fury over your sin. So when he comes to you now, he comes in grace and peace. Now, I want to create some categories for you. These are... I think these are just crucial categories for you to have. And I'm going to call them the categories of punishment and discipline. The category of punishment is strictly retributive. It's just justice. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Here's the line. If you cross it, this is what will happen to you. I'm going to pay you back. That's punishment. God has punished sin already. He poured out the fury of his wrath on the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what we talked about last week. Punishment is gone for the Christian. It's gone. You need that category of punishment and you need the category of discipline. Discipline is corrective in nature. It attempts to, it it looks at a situation, it sees somebody who's in trouble, and it corrects. It's restorative. The one who is administering discipline is for you. He wants your good. She wants your good. So have those categories. Punishment, discipline, if you're a parent, this is a, uh, a related side note. If you're a parent, disciplining your children, God has not called you to punish your children. You are for them. You not? It's it's not a matter. I I guarantee you that most people in the world, when they think of disciplining children, think of punishment as the category. It's, it's just, it's, there's some sense of justice in the heart and, and that's what, it's just, it's payback. I'm not going to talk about methods right now of what the Bible teaches. I'm just going to say most people think in, in the categories of punishment. This is the line. Here's what you don't do. If you cross that line, I will pay you back for it. Okay. So whether it's whether whether you whether it's spanking or whether it's timeout or whether it's grounding, it's payback time. But when you start to to view dis- discipline through the lens of correction, I am for you. I have come to bring grace to you. 
It, cha- it changes everything. It changes everything because you, you see your child is on the wrong path. This is not good for you. This is not good for... If, if, if your child is talking back to you, not obeying you the first time right away, not, not listening to your counsel, having bad attitudes, biting other kids, uh, just whatever kind of crazy stuff that our kids all do, it's not pay, God didn't bring you to be payback person. He didn't come, he didn't send you to be the wrath giver for your children. He sent you to correct them, to get them back on the, you're, a, you're, not, you're on a path of, destruct, of destruction. I can't let you keep going that way. It's not good for you. I love you too much. I need to correct you. And that correction may include pain, it may include confrontation. Grace and peace to you. When God confronts the church in Corinth, he says, I come bearing God's grace. I come bearing God's peace. It does not, grace and peace does not mean I come bringing no pain. I come bringing no confrontation. That's not what grace and peace means. Grace and peace means I come with a demeanor that is for you. I want your best. You're on a self-destructive path. You can't keep doing that. You're going to get hurt. I love you. I'm going to, let me help you. It may take some pain. It may take some confrontation. But it is grace. Some people think that the grace of God means that God just doesn't care about your sin. No, he cares a lot about your sin. Some people think that you have peace with God means that, that, that he's not going to like get in your face about things. No, he will get in your face about things. He, you're at peace with him. That means he's your father, not your judge any longer. Grace to you. Peace to you, Corinthians. I have something for you. I have a message for you. It's going to hurt. I'm going to confront some things. I love you far too much to say nothing. Corrective. Restorative. That is parental discipline 101. It's not punishment. It's correction. There may be people in this room that are under the disciplining hand of the Lord right now. Christians who are, uh, you, you, you've done something that you know that you know you shouldn't have done. You're feeling some sort of like you're, you, there are consequences for it. You're, you're feeling it. Um, I want you to know that if you're a Christian, God is not punishing you. This is not. It's not punishment. It's not retributive. It's not wrath. It may be discipline. You have to know that God is for you. This is good for you. He's going to help you. He's helping you. This is helping you. It's going to make you happier. It's for your good. It will make you happier in the long run. It may take years before you're happy as a result of this. It may take death before you're happy as a result of this, but this is for your good. It's not punishment. It's not wrath. So whatever, whatever is going on in your heart, whether it's something that I said that's confronting you in the last 30 minutes, 
whether it's something that you brought into this room, whether it's deep-rooted, long past history roots, stuff with your parents, stuff with your spouse, just junk way back there that that you are feeling the consequences of, feeling the conviction. If God is confronting you, it's because he's for you. It's because he came to bring you grace. He's bringing, he's bringing you grace, and he's doing it as one who has made peace between the two of you. He's your father. He loves you. He's for you. Okay. This is the opening to 1 Corinthians. And <clears throat> we're going to talk about some great things. It's going to be very helpful. Underneath it all is uh, this theme of your culture is ruling your mentality. I want you to know New Hope Fellowship. I did not choose to teach through First Corinthians because I think that your culture is ruling your mentality. I actually thought, oh, this would be cool. We could talk about like the Lord's Supper. We could talk about spiritual gifts. We can talk about uh, how to resolve conflict. And uh, it wasn't until I started studying this in the last couple of weeks that I realized, like, oh, there is, like, a major, like, sub-theme, or maybe it's even the, it's the soil, the soil of 1 Corinthians is cultural invasion. And you've got all these trees, pop, all these deadly trees that are popping up out of it, divisiveness and people not loving one another in, in the way that they're doing the Lord's Supper and their spiritual gifts or just so they could show off for one another and, you know, it's all it's, the soil is cultural invasion of a of a godless culture. So I, I didn't I didn't know that was coming. <laughs> I just want you to know that. And uh, I still think, though, however, God probably has something for us. He, he, this is just how he this is how he works. Surprise, surprise. Um, we thought we were doing one thing, and God has another agenda. So. Will you please listen together with me at what the, what the Lord may want to say to this church body, what he may want to say to your life as we go through 1 Corinthians. Um, and listen in as Paul genuinely loves the church body in Corinth. He is loving on them and confronting some things. And let's receive God's grace and peace for us through this letter. Can you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we we thank you because you have devoted yourself to give us grace. You are a grace giver. You are a peace giver. You are a peacemaker. You are on a mission to do good for us for the glory of your name. You're on a mission to bring about our happiness in who you are. You want us to grow in our abilities to celebrate who you are. Because of that, you hate the things that destroy us. And you are confronting them day by day as we open the scriptures. You're putting into application the reality that we have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer us who live, but you who live, Christ Jesus. We have been crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to us, Paul says. And uh, we don't want to live for this world. We don't want to live the way that we used to, Father. We want to live differently. We want to live according to your word. 
So come, please, give us grace. Help us to receive your corrective instruction. And do good for us. Make our hearts satisfied in you. And bring glory to your name. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.